Hello, microbe friends. I'm Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thanks so much for tuning in. I can't wait to share this with you. Today, I'll be chatting with Dr. Matt Casson, and we are going to talk about fungi, specifically how amazing they are and how we can enjoy them too. So Matt is an associate professor of plant pathology and mycology at West Virginia University. And we talked a little bit about his research, which is awesome, and it is about fungal diseases in forests and how millipedes interact with fungi, and also how we can use fungi to control invasive organisms. But he came on the show and was so kind to speak to me about his outreach work that has been featured in places like the New York Times, Today, NPR, and Smithsonian Magazine. So this is some cool stuff, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. But just to give you an idea, we talked about the Easter candy peeps and the delicious cookies Oreos and also Twinkies, which they're like this kind of cake filled with cream and lots of people think they last forever but we talk about how they don't they can become moldy and oreos can grow fungi and peeps can too so this is some fun outreach stuff that matt has done that i was really excited to get to ask him about we also talked about his research on fungus eating millipedes and um, that was personally kind of exciting to me because um, I, when I was living in Hot Springs, I actually saw some of these. I was um, hiking and I saw some millipedes just sitting on top of a fungus and I wondered when the world is going on there. So we talked about that a little bit. And at the very end, you are going to want to make it to the very end because Matt shares a cool hands-on activity that everyone can enjoy. And you can do this to explore fungi from the comfort of your own home. And he also shared some great resources at the very end. So make sure you make it to the end and um, we'll have lots of fun. But what I love is that Matt wants to help spread the love of fungi and show everyone how amazing they are. So please enjoy. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for coming on the Joyful Microbe podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about some different things about fungi today. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start out with just the basics. How would you define fungi? Well, um, the technical definition I give in my class for um Forest pest management and plant pathology are kind of a group of organisms that are unified in their um, ability to obtain nutrients um, through enzymatic uh, degradation. So um, fungi are uh, in their own kingdom, and as as in uh, being in their own kingdom, they um, 
have unique properties that make them separate from other eukaryotes. Um, so they are able to grow filamentously like, uh, like pieces of thread um, through a substrate. And they're able to secrete diverse enzymes to break down those substrates. And, and fungi are really good at breaking down really complicated substrates. And, you know, that's why they serve a real important function in our, in, you know, in our forests and in our various ecosystems, because they could break down what others cannot. So what are some examples of enzymatic degradation? And can you kind of define that for us and then give examples of enzymes and then substrates that they might break down? Well, yeah, for example, there's, you know, when we think about the different um, natural substrates, let's take wood, for example, is, is one of the most common ones you find fungi on. Wood is composed of cellulose and hemicellulose and, and lignin. Um, now, there are other microbes that have cellulases and can break down cellulose and hemicellulose. But fungi are unique in their ability to degrade lignin, which is a really complex you know, non-stereopolymer. It's, it's a very big molecule, um, very complex, um, and requires... Uh, you know, a really master craftsman to break it down. And that's what fungi do. They're able to, to degrade lignin into smaller subunits, which then allow other microbes to um, access um, those kind of subunits. But the initial attack um, has to be by fungi because they're the only ones with these lignin degrading enzymes. And there's a what whole suite, there's a whole suite of them. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, they, they, act on different parts of that large molecule. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly, you know, the ability to break down wood uh, is very important. I mean, if you think about our, our daily walks through the forest or through our yard, if we didn't have fungi breaking down wood, we would have piles of wood a mile high. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is what, how do you imagine the world without fungi? <laughs> what do you think it would look like? Yeah, I, I think that's one way to think about it. Um, uh, certainly, they're really good at breaking down compost. And, and, and certainly, they're not the only microbes contributing. I mean, bacteria play a huge role in, in, in spoilage and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. But fungi could break down, you know, really complex hydrocarbons. Um, you know, they talk about fungi that, that grow on jet fuel um, and they've or diesel fuel. Um They've, they've documented this, uh, and this is in the scientific literature. So it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are trying to bioprospect for fungi that could degrade plastics because, you know, landfills are filling up. Um, mm. and, and if we can find something that could, you know, readily break down plastics and microplastics, then we don't have to worry about the bioaccumulation in our, you know, our, um, fish and, and other ocean animals and such. Yeah. So what are some of the things that they end up breaking down to? Like if they took diesel or plastic, what is left over whenever they break that stuff down? Yeah, I'm not really sure about that. Um, uh, you know, the reality is that a lot of these complex substrates are um, broken down into intermediate uh, products and then 
other microbes, including bacteria, could then act upon them to, to degrade them even further so that they're, you know, broken down into the most simple of compounds and sugars and and other very simple molecules that could then be absorbed uh, by fungi or consumed by other microbes. That's pretty amazing to think about that there's this invisible world out there that's acting on all these chemicals and things around us and we don't even think about it. We don't see it happening. We just know that scientists have discovered something that can break down plastic. And But the truth is all that stuff is happening around us and, and in such a complex way where there are fungi and they're breaking down things, leaving things that then bacteria can break down. And I just can't, it's like thinking about that just as mind boggling. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think so often people will, they'll go to an exotic place in their mind to think about something that's just mind blowing. They'll say, Oh, I bet you there's something amazing happening in some un, unchecked corner of the world. But in reality, these processes are happening right below our feet and, and right in our backyards and right below the leaf litter, you know, in the soil. I mean, there's a reason there's a lot of soil microbiologists because it's such a complex field and it's there's so many interactions happening there between, you know, arthropods and nematodes and, you know, fungi, bacteria, viruses, you know, it's just limitless. And it's just so fascinating that all these things are, uh, when the system is actually, when the system is, is acting as it should, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, equilibrium there. Um, so these things have to work in a certain way at a certain time to allow these processes to take place. Um, and of course, when when there's a disequilibrium where there's, you know, maybe an introduced uh, microbe or um, maybe there's stress in the environment, um, then, then there's kind of a cascading effects on the, the microbial communities. I love what you said about that it's not an exotic thing that's happening and that it's happening right below our feet and in our backyards. It's so true that you don't have to go to the far corners of the earth to find these amazing things that are happening right here in front of us. I think that's so awesome. Um, so tell me, how did you get interested in fungi originally? Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm trained as a, a forest pathologist, um, first and foremost, which means I specialize in, in diseases of forest and shade trees. And, um, one might imagine a natural kind of organic progression from a love of trees to a love of microbes that attack trees. Um, so I, I grew up in a really rural area of Northeast Pennsylvania, North of, of Scranton, which is a, a city that a lot of people know. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people um, maybe celebrate uh, it's uh you know, reference to the office, but, um, mm -hmm. north of there is, is probably the most rural County in Pennsylvania, Susquehanna County, where I grew up and it has the most dirt roads of any County in Pennsylvania. And, you know, um, I spent my childhood outside, uh, you know, my, my mom would open the door and say, come back at dinner. And, you know, this was the eighties where that was permissible. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, spent a lot of time in the woods, um, running around and I was involved with boy scouts and, and, and things like that. And, up hunting and fishing 
but it's in those early days in the woods where I would see things like puffballs, you know, a type of uh, a type of fungus, and I would stomp on it, and the spores would come flying out. And you know, we were told that it, it, these these fungi produce smoke, you know, to to us as kids. Or <laughs> yeah. flying through the air looked like smoke, and they said the smoke was poisonous, and if you inhaled it, you would die immediately. So we'd <laughs> stomp them as we ha- held our noses closed, and then ran off screaming. I I, I remember that. <laughs> I love that. I remember doing that as a kid, but I don't think I really understood the significance of it. <laughs> yeah, and, and probably the same for me. Uh, I just remember falling in love with with natural ecosystems and and quiet forests um i got really into camping uh through boy scouts and you know and then i got involved with something called envirothon which was uh, might be a pennsylvania specific thing but it was kind of like a competition in in high school where we uh, you know identified trees and things like that and um that really kind of cemented my desire to pursue a a degree in in forestry related sciences and that's that's what i did so what did you do as a forest pathologist? What kinds of things were you looking at? Well, so it took me a while to get into forest pathology. I first did – I did three um, forestry degrees first. I, I went to the Adirondacks of upstate New York to do a, an associates there in forestry. And then I transferred to the University of Maine after I got my two-year degree and um, did a, um, a, a bachelor's of science in, in forest ecosystem science. And then, you know, my undergraduate advisor, he was a forest pathologist. And this is really where it kind of took a turn uh, for me. Um, and like you said, it was kind of an organic progression from from studying forests to forest diseases. Uh, but my advisor, who um, was my undergraduate advisor, said, you know, you should stay on and, and do a master's with me. Um, we're interested in looking at a problem we're having with beech trees in, in northern Maine. And... Uh, I thought that sounded pretty good, and um, I think at this time when I was a senior and an undergrad, I was already starting to think about like what I wanted to do as a career, and I was really interested in in academics and academia, and I knew that like to do that I would have to pursue, you know, an advanced degree. And my my advisor was like, "Well, you could do a master's with me, but you should move on to another institution to do a PhD." So that's what I did. I, I stayed on to do a master's working in northern Maine on beach park disease. Um, and if you, if you've never been to Maine, uh, basically the whole Northern half of the state is, is basically pulp and paper lands. I mean, there is a potato growing region on the Eastern part of the state up in Arusta County, but basically it's all like, you know, 4 million acres of, of pulp and paper lands. And, um, you know, these are forests where the moose outnumber the people 400 to one. And, you know, like I spent two summers up there and I saw maybe three people, we tallied some, 800 moose or something like that and it was just it was it was just such a um a thorough like experience to be honest so what does it look like whenever one of those beech trees ends up sick yeah so beech bark disease is like this interesting complex of it involves both an insect component and a fungus component so these scale insects um come in and they were introduced um, back in the 1890s into maritime Canada and around Halifax, Nova Scotia. And these insects kind of stick their mouth parts into the bark and, and like tiny needles, um, they start sucking on the, the phloem, which is kind of the, 
the the tissue that transports sugars from the leaves to the roots and um those miniature needle-like holes provide entry um uh, those needle-like holes provide entrances uh, for fungi and there's two fungi mm -hmm. that are involved with beech bark disease one called neonectria detisma and the other one called neonectria faginata and basically so is the 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 basically the hole that ends up in there is that kind of like when we get a cut and then we can end up with an infection that's right yeah i think that's really uh yeah it's quite analogous um the the insect uh, provides an infection court that is like an opening for the fungus to come in because these fungi that are involved with beech bark disease are, are, are somewhat weak pathogens, but in combination with the insect, they're, they're um, afforded the ability to get into the host without much effort. Um, so they go mm -hmm. ahead and they, they enter these, these um, insect feeding sites. And if a tree has a thousand scale insects feeding on it, that's a thousand points of initiation. So, one tree could get a thousand kind of uh, small cankers or lesions on the on the bark that could then kill, you know, the, the growing part of the tree. So if we were looking around, like going hiking through the woods, what kinds of things would we look for that might indicate a fungal disease in other types of plants and trees? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. It's it's a kind of a broad question, but it's a good question. Um, you know, of course, I'll, I'll start with the caveat that like in any given forest, a certain percentage of the trees are declining or dead. That's mm -hmm. totally normal. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, whether they died of, of a root rot or an abiotic stress or something like that, there are plenty of fungi that you can find on trees as they're dying and once they're dead. But it doesn't mean that those fungi killed the tree. It just could mean that they're taking advantage of a, of a, a relatively free food source. Um, but, you know, to get back to your question, you know, what to look for. Um, if you come to a forest and you see a lot of um, bracket fungi, like these kind of shelf-like fungi that are growing out of the side of trees, um, they're really hard. Um and you, you see them kind of depicted in, in different kind of drawings of forests. And um, that could be an indication of, of kind of a, a root rot or um, some kind of decay in the tree. And of course, that, you know, that could be um, a, a sign that there is kind of a, a problem in that stand. Uh, wilting of the leaves uh, could be a symptom of, of a fungal infection, but you know, more times than not, the, the way to tell that fungi are acting on it is to see the signs of the fungus itself. Do you see fruiting mm -hmm. bodies? Do you see mushrooms below the trees? Do you see tiny pimple-like fruiting bodies up and down the stem? You know, it's it's looking for those specific signs that, like, are indicative or diagnostically informative. So I guess – the way that I'm kind of imagining it is that all of these things that you just listed are pretty normal and we shouldn't feel sad about it <laughs> necessarily if we see trees that are dying. But like in a situation where there is a forest that's being destroyed by one particular pest, it would probably be way more obvious, do you think? And we just wouldn't see as much of a variety of organisms that are causing the death of different trees. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, you know, you take some of the, the kind of 
problems we've had in recent years. I'll give you an example of a pest and a disease. So over the last decade, we've seen a lot of our ash in the east um, fall to a, um, a small metallic wood borer called emerald ash borer. And this is kind of a, um, a small beetle that, um, you know, lays eggs underneath the bark of ash trees and the larvae kind of feed there and, you know, the trees die and it's wiped out a lot of the ash. And it's been really eye-opening because a lot of ash were planted in cities um, along streets because there were pretty decent street trees. Um, to, so to see your entire street lose all its trees to one mm. past is is certainly uh, eye-opening. Um, but there's a, there's a disease now um, that's pushing through the southeast and is now since been detected in Kentucky and Tennessee, so it's no longer just the, the deep south. It's called Laurel Wilt disease. And it's called Laurel Wilt because it uh, impacts plants in the laurel family. Um, and that includes plants like sassafras and red bay and uh, spicebush. There's a number of fragrant plants that grow throughout the eastern U.S. that are um, susceptible to this disease. And, and basically, this is a, a beetle vector disease. So these small rice size or rice grain size beetles carry with them this this fungus that causes kind of a, a catastrophic and, and fast moving wilt disease in the stems. Um, and it's it's really transformed a lot of the coastal forests that were kind of dominated by red bay. So it's been really devastating mm -hmm. in those native ecosystems to see this disease really push through. Wow, that's crazy. Um, well, I actually really want to ask you about some of your projects that you have worked on. So we'll move on to something that's a little bit happier. <laughs> um, so you have done a few different things. Um, one of them was called hashtag fungal peeps. And one of them is hashtag moldy twinkie and most recently hashtag gaga fungi. So, <laughs> Um, I kind of want to hear about how fungal peeps started and, um, how did you end up wanting to do this? And I kind of want to know what the conversation was that led to actually starting this experiment. Can you remember any of that? The conversation? Yeah, maybe? Um, well, actually the, it's, it's a great question and, you know, um, Obviously, I'm I'm proud of the research I do, but you know I'm also proud of the efforts that that I've made and people in my lab have made to kind of connect with the general public. And and really, that's what these you know fungal peeps and moldy twinkie and and gaga fungi, all these uh, kind of social media experiments are, are ways to connect with the general public to say, hey, did you know fungi are pretty cool and they're doing really cool things. Um, and they're capable of, of really colonizing really interesting substrates. So fungal peeps started really with a trip to the grocery store. Um, mm -hmm. I was with my kids. I have three young boys. And um, like their dad, they love sugar. Um, and, you know, we were pushing down, <laughs> pushing down the, the, the holiday aisle um, at some point um, close to Easter. And we were going by some peeps. And I saw that they were on sale. And uh, 
I picked up a couple packs and my kids were cheering like, you know, they had just won the lottery. And I said, well, hold on, guys. I'm, I'm thinking about inoculating these with fungi. And <laughs> of course, their body language is such that they just, you know, had their favorite like balloon popped with a needle in front of their eyes or something. You know, but I, I ended up buying, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a monster. I bought a couple, <laughs> a, a couple for consumption as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I thought when I saw them, I don't really know if there was something that I had seen in the news around that time that inspired it. But, you know, just thinking about how to connect with people, you know, science communication and how to really, you know, make an impact. I thought, well, this would be a fun experiment. Um, so I, I bought the peeps, I brought them into the lab and I kind of looked around to see what fungi I had laying around, you know, <laughs> as kind of a lab that, that focuses on fungal biodiversity. Um, we have a lot of different fungi in culture at any given time in the culture room in the lab on the benches. So I just kind of grabbed what I had and, uh, you know, asked the, the question, you know, what, what, uh, would these fungi possibly do to a peep? Could they colonize it? Could they degrade it? Um, and, you know, I put it up on Twitter with a, a kind of like with a laugh and, uh, <laughs> it like went viral. Um, and you know, that was really the first viral experience I had. Uh, and it, it, you know, it didn't go viral in some of the ways things go viral. I think, you know, mm. maybe like 3,500 people liked it or something, but it did catch the eye of, um, Joanne Klein, um, at the New York times, um, who kind of reached out to me and said, Hey, what's going on with the peeps? And, you know, this was like 24 <laughs> hours after I started it. I just did it kind of for fun. But then yeah. like, I started to think about like, okay, well, why did I do that? And, you know, I think deep down. I think the reason I did it is because I wanted to get people excited about fungi. Mm. And like, there's this whole idea of like meet people where they are. You know, mm -hmm. there's people that are sitting in their kitchens um, to this day, you know, like eating peeps or eating Twinkies. And, you know, those are things that are laying around the house. You know, if, if we're talking about auger plates, like, you know, that doesn't really connect with the, the, the common person because it's not yes. something that they, they've seen or held or even know what it means. So to be able to inoculate these fungi onto peeps and say, okay, um, what's going to happen? And sure enough, like, you know, within 24 hours, the fungal plugs seem to desiccate. Like it almost like the peeps pulled the water out of them. Um, oh, so we're wow. like, oh, oh, well, this isn't going to work. So I'm like, okay, we need to update the experiment. So I pre-soaked another batch for 24 hours in like 50 mil falcon tubes to get them really wet and mushy. And then redid some of the treatments. <laughs> and sure enough, that, that worked. <laughs> I love that. So it's like the peep was sort of like a Petri dish in and of itself. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, what it tells us is two things. Is one, uh, you know, the food industry really knows what they're doing. They know how to make mm. things to not grow mold. But the other thing is, you know, if you happen to have a flood in your house and your peeps get flooded, uh, they're probably going to get colonized by fungi. <laughs> <laughs> So fungi, I just like most organisms, really need water to thrive, I guess. Right. Some sort of water. Um, yeah, that is so funny. I love that. And I love that it's a way to meet people where they are and connect with them and things like that are in their kitchen. So, so, so moldy Twinkie was kind of a horse of a different color. And mm -hmm. the reason that was different is because that was kind of a found phenomenon. You know, mm -hmm. we didn't, we didn't initiate that. Um, this guy, Colin Purrington did, uh, he found mm -hmm. these, um, old Twinkies in his, in his basement. He tried to eat them. 
they tasted like a dirty sock. Uh, <laughs> read the article, you know the story, but yep. you know it caught our attention, of course. Uh, and you know, I've been following Colin um, already on social media, so I was quick to see it. And uh, you know, my postdoc and I reached out, and and sure enough, um, that was a really interesting experiment to figure out. Okay, who done it? You know, it was kind of like a, a, a forensic pathology. We're trying to figure out like who killed this Twinkie. Um, and sure enough, we found some candidate fungi from some of them, but the, you know, the mummified Twinkie kind of, uh, presented some challenges because basically the, the fungus had consumed all the goods from it. And basically after it consumed everything it could, it died. So there was no viable propagules on the, the mummified one, but we were able to use some other imaging techniques, uh, through a collaborator and some, um, some amplicon sequencing. Um, to figure out kind of what was going on. So we did basically did direct PCR from DNA extraction from a, a moldy Twinkie. So Colin was someone that you already had been following on Twitter. Um, so is he another scientist? Yeah, he's a, well, I, he's like a biology teacher or was a biology, bi biology teacher. I'm not sure what he does now, mm -hmm. um, but it was just someone that he interacts with. Um, you know, there are people on Twitter that um, have a lot of followers and, and follow very few. I'm not one of those. Um, mm -hmm. I follow everybody. I just need a constant, like, stream of inputs. Um, I'm I'm really kind of inspired by, you know, getting different perspectives on things. So I think I follow nearly as many people as uh, follow me, and that's, you know, close to 10,000 at this mm -hmm. point now. Um, wow. And, you know, so people tag me a lot in, in things. They'll say, hey, I found this weird fungus. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. That's so fun. <laughs> um, okay, so can you describe for the listeners like what the Twinkies looked like in case they've never seen the pictures? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Twinkies came in kind of a a couple different forms. Um, the I had him send some that didn't look bad at all. They just kind of looked a little stale, and and certainly they were to the touch. They were harder than a normal Twinkie, but they still had that kind of yellowish cake color. Another one had kind of a quarter size lesion on, on the side of it. It was kind of like reddish. So imagine if someone had put like drops of red food coloring on the side of the Twinkie and, and, and made a shape about the size of a quarter. That was how the second one looked. Um, and that was kind of a, a small fungal, um, a small zone of fungal colonization. And we were able to confirm a uh, fungus cladosporium out of that um, fungus colonized um, circle. The third Twinkie um, looked mummified. And what it's I mean by that is- the iconic one. <laughs> yeah. The wrapper itself was sucked in. Hey there, it's me, Justine, founder of Joyful Microbe. Guess what? I'm not just passionate about spreading microbiology joy through my podcast. I'm also interested in helping others create engaging scientific content. As a freelance science writer and editor with a PhD in microbiology, I bring a blend of scientific expertise and effective communication. No need to hire two people to get the job done. I've got it all covered. If you love what I've created on Joyful Microbe, Imagine what we can do together for your project. Whether you're a life science company or an academic and need compelling content, 
I'm here to help. If you've got something in mind and want to chat about it, send me an email at justine at justinedees.com or check out my website, justinedees.com. Let's turn your ideas into awesome science content. Can't wait to collaborate with you. Now, back to the show. There was no air left around the Twinkie. Typically, when you get a Twinkie, there's mm. a little bit of air there. You know, you can move, it moves around in the package. Uh, it basically was, it looked like it had been vacuum sealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looked kind of like a, uh, if you've, if your listeners have ever seen a morel mushroom, and Colin described it this way in, in his interview. We did a combined interview with NPR on this. And if you've ever seen the top or the cap kind of a morel mushroom, it's kind of brown and, and, and kind of um, shriveled and um, has a lot of kind of nooks and crannies to it. That's kind of how it looked. Um, another way to describe it would be kind of like if you had a, a giant um, mummified toe and you put it in a wrapper. <laughs> That's kind of how it looked. It was, it, you know, it was kind yeah. of nasty looking, but also yeah. very, very intriguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you found in one of those, you found cladosporium. Mm-hmm. So what, um, is that the only one you were able to culture fungus from? Uh, yeah. And the other one we, well, we, so we found, we, we basically PCR confirmed clad, cladosporium from the other mummified one, but we were unsuccessful in culturing um, from that mummified one. That is that there was no viable spores or, or mm, hyphal fragments that we could grow it out on a Petri plate, but we were okay. able to grow it out on a Petri plate from the one with the quarter size kind of lesion on the side. So do you think all of them had the same thing and one had just progressed further? I, I think so. I mean, based on the sequence similarity, that seemed to be the case. Um, yeah. There were some other um, kind of food mycologists uh, that had some other opinions, and it's possible that there was more than one contaminant in there. But, you know, the other point I'll make here is that, like, generally speaking, the food industry knows what they're doing, and they have kind of um, – they have safeguards in place to, like, limit this. But, you know, um, I'll say really it's not – you know, it wasn't – the fault of hostess or anything like that. I mean, these were eight years expired. So, I mean, right. there's a reason yeah. they have an expiration date on them. They say eat them before this, because if you leave a cake in a basement with like, you know, high <laughs> moisture for eight years, what do you expect? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is but, so funny. But it brings up a really good point, Justine. And, and that point is that, you know, people think that some of these non-perishables basically means that they're immortal. Mm. Um, that, that foods are immortal, canned foods. And, you know, there's YouTube channels devoted to people that open, you know, 100-year-old cans of beans and, and, and make funny faces <laughs> as they smell and try it. Um, and that, that is kind of dangerous to, to eat old expired canned food. Yeah. Um, just like it would probably be um, not wise to eat an expired Twinkie, although Colin did try it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. depending on the fungus that gets in there, you run the risk of there being possibly mycotoxins or other mm. – you know, other compounds that are really, uh, you know, um, scary or detrimental to humans. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really good point. And it is weird to think about Twinkies or kind of have that uh, where you picture them as like lasting forever and 
that's why this was kind of interesting and probably shocking to a lot of people that, <laughs> that no, it can actually spoil <laughs> just like <Right>. anything else. <laughs> um, and you guys, did you think that it, the fungus got in there, I guess, before it was packaged? I think it would have to be in that case. Um, but mm -hmm. there's always the possibility that there were small micro abrasions on the wrappers that mm -hmm. we couldn't see. Um, it's not like I studied the wrapper, you know, like it was still, <laughs> I know. but I wasn't yeah. doing like an, a scanning electron micrograph of the wrapper to look for like microscopic holes. So yeah, of course. It's, yep. it's and possible. I guess that, yeah. that would have had to happen to all of the packaged ones. If they all seem to have the same fungus, then it would kind of indicate maybe that it came from the factory, but of course, um, <laughs> it doesn't really matter because they were way past their expiration date. So it's kind of like, you don't need to be eating those either way, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. it's still fun. I think it's a neat experiment and I do love that it's, it's still like, it's reaching people, um, kind of where they are and, and it's interesting right. because it's some, food that we all know what it is and don't expect it to spoil. So, um, and then, okay. So right. your latest one is the Lady Gaga Oreos. <laughs> so tell me about that. What made you choose Oreos next? Yeah, that was, well, I actually, we, um, we were approached by a, a writer at Vice who wanted to get our opinion about the shelf life of of lady gaga oreos because there was some craze where people were paying like 80 bucks a pack even though in oh, some wow. places you could still get them for three dollars a pack but like people thought that they were super collector's items and you know collecting food is uh, always kind of a, a a scary uh habit because you know like depending on how long you keep it it can go bad and you know the, the same reasons we were talking about the twinkies and that's why they reached out they had seen the the moldy Twinkie article that we were a part of and, and kind of said, well, you know, could we expect Oreos to also get moldy? And, and, and we kind of, you know, we defaulted to the shelf life story where, you know, if they're eaten within, you know, the 180 days or whatever that the shelf life is for a pack of Oreos, then that's fine. But, you know, as you, as you let things go a year or two years or five years, you know, you run the risk of them, um, getting moldy but at the same mm -hmm. time you know you'll see stories just ab about twinkies as well of like the 20 year old twinkie or the 40 year old twinkie like there are some that like just desiccate to the point where they never can become colonized by anything they're just too dry mm. um so just because something's a uh, past its due date doesn't mean that it, microbes are going to you know invade it it just means that that, that option is on the table <laughs> yeah um so have, what is your progress with it? When did you start the experiment? Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to check Twitter. It's kind of like my journal. Uh, I, um, I, I actually have the Oreos right in front of me. And actually, I did something a little um, unique. I actually took plugs from the, the Twinkie and transplanted them into the Oreos oh. to see if, um, like, you know, uh, the way that they do kind of transplant, fecal transplants or something like that, <laughs> as graphic as that is. Um, I thought, well, if we take, like, you know, colonized Twinkie and put it into the center, the heart of an Oreo, 
you know, would we get some uh, synergy or crossover between Hostess and an Oreo brand? I don't know. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was just – it was fun and lighthearted. And, again, I just want to emphasize that, that really my, my point here is is not the experiment itself. It's just to get people to think about fungi and the role in the environment um, and that they play an important role in, in even the degradation and spoilage of foods. And, um, you know, I, I feel really good about those efforts because, you know, the moldy Twinkie, for example, I think, you know, um, several million people heard or read that. Um, and that's really exciting to get mycology out in front of that many people because, you know, my efforts on Twitter to to do some of my other things where I'm like, check out this fungus from this tree, you know, like 12 mm. likes 10 days later, you know, um, yeah. it's, it's nice to get some. Um, people excited about fungi, you know, regardless of if it's your work or just fungi in general. Yeah, I think it's really neat. And I mean, I think it's, it's true. You're a serious scientist. You study things that are not related to Twinkies and Oreos, but that these are really, I think, important projects also, along with your research um, that it, they just help connect people to this fungal world that they may not realize is there. And I think that's, I think that's really exciting and I think it's neat. And I think it enhances people's lives too, because they learn something new that is actually pretty normal, (laughs) but they don't see it. And so they don't think about it. Right. And I think the other thing that's really kind of fun about it is to see, how polarizing like the opinions are uh, like on whether or not like peeps taste like garbage or, you know, (laughs) God's gift to humanity, you know, like people have very strong opinions either way. I'm like on, on Twinkies and, and, um, and peeps and things like that. So it's really fun to kind of um, throw this extra element into the mix. Cause you know, like the people that are anti peep are like, yes, we want these fungi to destroy all the peeps. And then like, yeah. you know, the, the peeps lovers are like, no, don't take my, my childhood from me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So do you have anything that's next? Any other projects in mind? Um, I don't, you know, we're, we're busy with, um, you know, we have a a giant cicada emergence coming up here in May. And we're also, um, we got this, um, national geographic society grant to study fungus feeding millipedes. Um, and those two projects, like we're going on an expedition here in March, our first of the, of the grant to collect seven different millipede species across the, the Southeast United States, all the way down. We're going all the way down to Key West. Um, and oh, wow. back to collect these fungus feeding millipedes. So this is more of the, um, you know, the the research, the nerdy research, but um, it's definitely fun to be a part of that, you know, and, and to have the support of National Geographic on that grant is really exciting. That um, is awesome. And then I – go ahead. I um, – it was several months ago, but I found some feather millipedes are those the types that are one of the types that you might be looking for? Um, yeah, that's actually the millipedes that we study. Feather millipedes are yeah. in the Colobagnatha. You might have found Brachycybe, maybe? I'm not sure yeah. what it was, but they they kind of, they're like a pink color and they're very flat. And Wait, where, where was this? 
This is in Arkansas. I was in Hot Springs and I was hiking yeah. and I encountered them multiple times, but I took pictures and I posted them on Twitter too. Um, and they were eating a fungus and it was the coolest thing to yeah. see because they're all piled on just sitting there, but obviously like eating the fungus, I guess. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, I thought that uh, was really that, neat to see. As luck would have it, that is the that is the species of millipede that we specialize on. That's Brachycybe lacantii, and we've collected in hot springs in in, in other parts of, of southern Arkansas, you know, all the way into eastern Oklahoma. Um, and, and you know, a lot of people don't realize that maybe they listen to your podcast that there are actually hills in, in Oklahoma, and you know, we've yeah. sampled in in Arkansas there from hot springs west into yep. Oklahoma, and uh, that millipede is. Um, basically that the millipede that got us started on studying millipedes. And um, it's one of the most charismatic of the fungus feeding millipedes because it's, it forms these multi-generational colonies. It's got exclusive paternal care, which means the dads exclusively take care of the eggs. Um, mm -hmm. They're, um, you know, form these extravagant pinwheels around fungi. I mean, I could speak for hours on those, uh, but <laughs> we published a paper in 2019 um, describing the fungal communities of that millipede, including several sites from Arkansas. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I, I oh. love it there. It's it's a beautiful area down there. I, I love hot springs. We just moved away from hot springs, but um, we, um, we're in northeast Arkansas now, but we, we loved being in hot springs. Um, and it was really awesome to be able to go hiking. And, and I just, I saw those one day, took some pictures because I noticed they were on top of a fungus. And I thought, this is so cool. Um, mm -hmm. And I sent it to yeah. one of my friends on Twitter and, um, and Maureen Berg. And she was like, oh, those are feather, feather oh, millipedes. Yeah. I love those. Oh, my gosh. You know, and I was like, oh, this is so fun. And asked her if they were eating it. And um, she said, yeah, they're, so do they kind of, if are they like farming the fungus or are they just eating it? Are there thing, other things they're doing with the fungus? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we, we basically characterized the culturable communities of these millipedes and found that they were associated with some, you know, 300 species of fungi, you know, spanning four phyla of fungi. So they have quite a diverse, um, uh, diet with regards to fungal diversity. Um, there are some core members of their fungal community that we've characterized, um, but how they're using them, if it's just nutrition or do they use some of the precursors for defensive secretions? A lot of millipedes have these really complex chemical defenses, and uh, it's unclear how they're able to synthesize some of them because these defense organ uh, compound organs are very simple. So they think uh, that maybe fungi play a role in building some of those defensive secretions. So we're trying to understand oh, wow. that now. And, and really the Nat Geo project that we uh, just got funded is to characterize the fungal communities of half the known fungus feeding millipedes across the United States. Um, and that includes other species of Brachycybe, those feather millipedes that you saw in Arkansas. There's about eight, eight species that occur. Um, there's two here in the East. Um, there's there's four or five in the in California and the West Coast. So we'll be traveling okay. to California here in the late fall to sample millipedes there as well. That's so exciting. 
Well, I'm going to have to follow you on that and maybe we'll talk more about millipedes again. <laughs> yeah, we have a we have a specific um Twitter, Millipede Eats, which is our account um that we have devoted to that project. But we just started that project in 2021 and like I said our first expedition to um down to South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama and Florida happens here in less than a month. Wow. Okay, so we'll have to put that Twitter account in the show notes. Um Okay, so is there anything else you would recommend to listeners to help them connect and enjoy the fungal world, um, either outside or inside? Um, well, I, I definitely would encourage people to use iNaturalist and other community science platforms to, to learn about what's happening in your backyard. Oftentimes using books to identify um, fungi or arthropods or, you know, uh, can, flowers can be challenging. Um, so, you know, using a platform like iNaturalist allows experts to weigh in on the IDs. Um, and that's something can you describe doing. that for listeners? What if they've never heard of that before, what iNaturalist is? Yeah, iNaturalist is just a way to upload pictures of what you're seeing in your yard and to basically put a name on what you're seeing. Um, so mm -hmm. you upload it and then, you know, um, it might suggest to you what, it, what, what it thinks it is, but then experts will weigh in and say, oh yeah, that's definitely Brachycide mm -hmm. lecantii, the feathered millipede. Um, so even if you don't know, you can upload these observations and then, you know, we're using it ourselves for our research. Researchers will look across, um, you know, the records over the last five years and see, uh, say, okay, I want to study this one salamander i want to study this one butterfly and i need to know all the places it's been seen in the last five years so you're basically uh, amassing huge data sets uh that you can then leverage for your own research or you know just um just for understanding declines or you know recovery of populations um these are really useful data sets for for man land managers but also they're great for the average person who just wants to know what the butterfly is that's on their flowers in the back of their yard. Yeah, that's really neat. It's kind of like a way to get people involved in scientific research sometimes, it sounds that's like. That's right. And, and we've used those in, in several of our studies now. Um, you know, obviously there's a number of uh, um, podcasts like yours where, where people are learning um, about microbes and, and things like that. But, you know, engaging on, on social media is, is a, a great way to do that. There's a lot of like private groups on Facebook for mushroom ID, um, hmm. that I'm part of and others are, you know, other experts in the field are part of and, and helping make those IDs. But, you know, you don't have to have any degree to be a mycologist. You just have to have <laughs> a passion for it, you know? And, um, some of the amateurs, and we use that term, like sometimes people think amateur is a negative term, but like amateur mycologists are often viewed as some of the, like the most uh, committed uh, mycologists out there. And a lot of them have no professional training, but they've spent their whole lives learning fungi and they can tell you more than, you know, a person with four degrees, you know? So um, yeah. it's great to interact with the broader community um, through these, social media platforms, whether it be Twitter or Facebook groups, um, 
or Instagram. I'm not really – I don't use Instagram, so I, I can't really speak to that, but I'm very active on Twitter. And um, there's a lot of uh, people that post pictures of mushrooms and actively tweet uh, trying to get IDs, and they get them. So, you know, you can yeah. be posting pictures there as well. Yeah, I love that. And I know that on Instagram, people kind of do the same thing. And it's probably you can find them through hashtags and stuff like that. Um, but I loved what you said that you don't have to have a, a degree to be a mycologist. Um, that's such a good point. And I think that's so neat to keep in mind that we can all enjoy these things and get to be really um, well versed in these different things in the fungal world. And, um, and you don't have to go to college to do it. <laughs> so I love that. Yeah. You know, it's, I had, I had this one of these like eye opening experiences just like a day or two ago where one of the undergrads in my lab, um, they were writing a statement for, for some scholarship and they, they were hesitant to call themselves a scientist. Mm. And I said, you are a scientist. And they said, well, I'm only an undergrad. And I said, well, that doesn't matter. You know, like. It's a mentality. It's kind of a way of thinking, a way of approaching problems. Like, yeah. you know, do do you make observations and and you know, base those observations on on the scientific method? You know, like you yes. don't need to have a degree to do that. And you know, I think the people that say you need a degree to call yourself a scientist are um, are are uh, misinformed. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, so um, something I'm going to be asking people who come on the podcast is um, for a at-home microbiology or mycology activity. So what can you tell the audience that they can do to experience the microbial world in a hands-on way? Yeah, well, um, I think a lot of my kind of community science um, or, or social media projects uh, speak to what I might suggest. But, you know, oftentimes, you know, at the end of the month or you know, every few weeks, we kind of reach into our refrigerator and we say, oh, God, I never used that leftover. I'm going to throw it away. And, and you do because it's funky. Um, but, you know, um, maybe take a couple slices of bread, um, you know, from that you bought from the farmer's market or, you know, a loaf that, you know, doesn't really have preservatives in it. And um, maybe put one piece in your refrigerator and, and one piece on the counter and, and one piece, you know, somewhere else in the house where maybe the relative humidity is slightly different and kind of, you know, let them sit there for a couple of weeks and, and, and see what grows um, and then take a picture of it and post it, you know, uh, post it on social media. Maybe, maybe they could tag, um, you or me in this, um, but it'd be mm -hmm. neat to see the kinds of, you know, common molds that we'd expect to, to grow on bread, but maybe some interesting um, atypical molds that'll grow. Um, and if you're not having mm -hmm. good luck, you can always kind of spray it with a little bit of water and see what happens. <laughs> I love that. That's really fun. Yeah, definitely tag us, both of us, on social media. You can tag me at Joyful Microbe. And tell everybody what your handle is real quick. Uh, my handle is at, at Kasson, K-A-S-S-O-N underscore W-V-U. Yeah, um, so tag and us and go ahead. The other thing I want to say is, um, you know, I'll just put out a caution. If you are allergic to molds, um, don't try this experiment because, you know, you will get penicillium and, and other common um, bread molds to grow. 
So mm-hmm. if you know you're you're allergic to those things, then um, I would maybe encourage you to try another experiment from maybe another um, uh, podcast, you know, later on. Yeah. Well, and maybe they can stick the bread inside of a plastic bag or something so that they don't have to worry about it. Right. But I guess, yeah, it's <laughs> you'd have to expose it to some stuff first before sealing it away. <laughs> so do you have any resources on um, fungi that you could share that would help lis- listeners go deeper on this topic? Hmm. There are probably a number of resources, but I'm not uh, a one who generates a lot of these kind of fact sheets and um you know I, I don't have a designated website for um for fungi there there are a number of sites um but i would say again come or... back to the come back to the community science platforms something like iNaturalist uh just searching you know your area for different mushrooms and um you know things like that you can kind of zoom in and see what's around you that's that's a good way to start but um once you get an ID from iNaturalist, then you can kind of use the, the power of Google and Google Scholar to understand. I mean, Google Scholar tends to be a little more technical. They're like more peer-reviewed scientific journal articles. So you can find a lot of popular press and, and more um, general public-friendly um, interfaces in, in the general web, uh, whereas Google Scholar is more like uh, scientific investigations on certain aspects of fungi. Do you have any favorite books about fungi? Um, I uh, just got a book called Entangled Life uh, by um, Merlin Sheldrake. Um, that's mm-hmm. a book that I just picked up, and uh, I started reading that, and that's fascinating. I have a number of um, Mushroom ID books. There's a really classic one called Mushrooms Demystified by David mm. Aurora, and okay. it's, a re- it's a real classic. I um, I have it here on my shelf. I'm looking to see what the uh, the date is. You can buy a, a used copy. Um, looks like this came out in 1979, but it's got some. You know, it's still uh, it's still a pretty. Great <laughs> That's awesome. It's got some really funny pictures. It's got those uh, like uh, um, a couple, you know, dozen plates of of color photos in the middle, and some of them are kind of uh, humorous, kind of like interpretations of what happens if you eat poisonous or if you eat kind of the wrong mushrooms (laughs) and they can make you sick. So there's some kind of humor in it too. So it's a real classic. Um, I I would say, you know, being on, on one of those, um, Facebook groups, that's a private group that you can join. Um, anybody can join. You just have to request access. They can tell you what mushroom guide is best for the area that you're in. Um, Mm. so it really depends on, on what area you're in. And, um, a lot of the fungi I study are not like, they're not basidiomycota. So they're not the mushroom forming fungi and they tend to be highly underrepresented in a lot of the, um, mushroom ID guides because they're more mushroom specific. Yes. That's a good point. Um, so, okay. Well, that is awesome. And I just recently started reading Entangled Life as well. Um, and I've only gotten into the introduction, but I've so far it has been fascinating. So many amazing facts about fungi just right there in the introduction. <laughs> so um, I'm excited not, to go through not, it. Not that, I'm, 
not that I'm saying this so you can put it on your blog, uh, on your podcast, but um, my research is featured on page 103. Oh, um, that's that so book, fun. So okay. Page 103. <laughs> yeah, our cicada research <laughs> is, is, okay. is on there. So. Oh, that'll be really neat. Okay. I'm excited to get to that part. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, this has been really, really interesting. I've loved it. Um, where can everyone find and follow and connect with you? I think the easiest and the quickest way to get a hold of me is, is through Twitter. Um, and I already gave my handle. Like I said, we also have a, a second Twitter handle for our millipede specific project called at millipede eats, no spaces. Um, and, uh, that's our national geographic project on, on fungus feeding millipedes. Um, so you can reach out to me there. Um, you can find me, uh, West Virginia University has a, uh, a webpage for each of their faculty. And I'm on the faculty in the Division of Plant and Soil Sciences there. So you can find an official page for me there. Um, and aside from that, you know, uh, you can reach out to me via email if you have questions or, or through uh, DMs on Twitter or, you know, uh, whichever, whichever you prefer. But I'm I'm happy to take your um, f uh, questions related to fungi. Um, following the uh, moldy Twinkie saga, we had a number of people reach out with some very strange photos, uh, including someone sent a, a you know a chicken bone that had been left <laughs> on a shelf for like three years and they wanted to know our opinion about it. Um, you know, so we've received all kinds of interesting things. Um, <laughs> that is awesome. I love that. <laughs> and I love that you're willing to look at people's pictures of different things. So, um, well, thank you so much again. This has been awesome talking with you and, um, everybody go and follow and, um, find Matt on social media on Twitter. Well, thanks so much, Justine. I really had a, a, a great time talking with you as well and um, look forward to um, interacting with you in the future. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Joyful Microbe podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. It would help me a lot and mean a ton to me if you took the time to rate the show and write a review. Also, share the episode with a friend you think may like it. To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you will find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned. If you want to connect on social media, you can also find me on Twitter at Joyful Microbe and on Instagram at Justine LDs. Thanks again, microbe friends. Talk to you next time.